Good morning. Isaiah 55, 10 through 13. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. For further reference, Hebrews, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, and John 5, 39 through 40, the word of the Lord. So, we've gotten to the end of the book. The book, which is the sermon series we've been in for the past five weeks, where we've been looking at the Bible, God's Word. And we've asked some big questions. In the first week, we started off with the question, why do we need God's Word? Why do we need God to speak to us? And the answer that we came to is that we need God's Word because He is the Creator and we're the creation. God is a thing that's not like anything else. He's, in fact, the only thing that stands outside of our universe. So we have no way of getting to God unless God gets to us first. And God's Word is the source of our life, our identity, and our purpose. Week number two, we said, all right, well, we need God to speak, but how does He do that? How does God actually give us His Word? And the answer we came to there is that God gives His Word to His special people. But He gives His Word to His people in order to speak through His people. Right? And we can have confidence that the Bible really is God's Word to His people because God has given us some parameters for identifying true prophets versus false prophets. And God promised His Holy Spirit to watch the giving of His Word. And most of all, God vindicated His Word by the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Week number three, we said, all right, we need God's Word. We can have confidence that the Bible is God's Word. But how do we even begin to approach it? Like, what, what is this thing? Right? And so what Tim showed us in week number three is that God's Word is not a manual of morals, it's not a bunch of philosophical principles. It's not even a therapeutic self-help book. Primarily, God's Word is a story, a true story, God's story, the story of God's relationship with His people, and the hero of that story is the Lord Jesus Himself. Last week, we addressed the question, well, but how do we even read the Bible? How do we actually begin to unpack it and unfold it. And what Eric showed us is that to begin with, we have to give the Bible authority over our lives. You're giving authority to something, 
It's not a question of whether or not to give authority. The question is, what are you giving authority in your life? We have to begin with giving God's Word authority if we're going to read it. Then we have to know what the Bible says. We actually have to read it. All right? And then when we come to difficult passages, we unfold its meaning. Right? We use the resources available to us to figure out what is the text trying to communicate. Not what do I feel, not what do I wish it said, but what is it actually communicating? And then we meditate on it. We, we soak in it. We saturate our lives in it. So that brings us to today, the end of the series, where we ask the question, so what's going to happen? What can we expect if we actually do read God's Word? What can we expect to happen? We've actually already answered the question. I don't know if you guys remember, but all the way back in the very first week, when we kicked the whole series off, we said the Bible has been the most transformative, powerful book in all of human history. Every single culture that the Bible has touched, it has changed. The Bible has been behind most of the biggest positive social changes we've seen in history. So what can we expect when we come to God's Word? We can expect it to change us to bring transformation. Really? How, how does that work? That's a great question. Let's explore that question together. And the, the place we are going to get our questions answered is it here in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 55, through his prophet Isaiah, God makes a promise. He makes a promise about his word. All right, what is that promise? Verse 11 that when God sends His Word, it's going to do something. And it's going to do the thing that God intended it to do. Well, what's that thing? Well, we find out in the previous verse, in this picture, right, of precipitation, watering the ground, and crops growing up, right? Now, in order to really get the imagery here, keep a couple of things in mind. One, this is an agrarian economy. That's a big word, I know. Uh, meaning their life, their livelihood is tied to the annual crop harvest, okay? They are very, very dependent on the harvest. Two, this was written in the Middle East, where precipitation is kind of rare. The Middle East is a very dry place. And in Israel, it actually only rains one time a year in the winter. And if they did not get adequate rain and snowfall, their crops would die. Their animals would die. They would die. So rain is not a nuisance. It's precious. It's life-giving, right? It is a wonderful, wonderful gift. So God is saying when He gives His Word, it's going to nourish us. It's going to give us something that we need in order to live, right? What can we expect from God's Word? We can expect it to nourish us. But let's be honest, that kind of sounds like a platitude. You know, it sounds like something you put on a really cheesy Christian poster, you know, where like there's a hill and there's a silhouette of somebody on the hill with their arms up and it's raining and it says, the word of the Lord nourishes my soul like water does the dry ground. You know, and you're just like, really? What does that even mean, man? But it's actually true, okay? And I want us to see how it's true. So, when we talk about basic human needs, we tend to think about things like food, 
shelter, clean water, right? Adequate medical care, right? But as human beings, we also have emotional needs, or maybe what we could call psychological needs, things that we need for our brains to actually function correctly, okay? And top of that list is relationships. We, uh, look, over the past 50 years, we've done a lot of studies on the human brain, and it has become very, very clear. We are designed for relationships, And in fact, if you cut a person off from all human contact for a significant length of time, our brains begin to deteriorate. It does real psychological damage, okay? We need to have contact, but it's it's deeper than just contact. Our brains are actually designed to, to form what therapists call attachments, okay? Attachments are relationships. They're, it's connection with another person, right? Uh, And in fact, your brain started doing this day one. Before you were even born, when you were in utero, your brain was making that attachment with mom. All right? And when you're a kid, your attachments are your parents and then your siblings. And as you get older, you you move those attachments onto others, friends, a spouse, right? Now, the reason attachments are important is because you actually need them for something. You, your brain uses your attachments, and particularly your, your primary attachments, those, your parents, your spouse, those really close relationships. Your brain uses them to construct an identity. Now, I know as Americans, we tend to think, well, I have an identity, and the way I figure it out is I just look deep, deep down within myself, and I discover it, right? Sorry, neuroscience disagrees with us. What actually seems to be the case is that we have a very incoherent sense of ourselves. And we use these relationships, the way these people treat us, the way they speak to us, to construct meaning around who we are and the world we live in. Okay? So, the quality of your primary attachment relationships has a lot to do with the kind of person and the health that you experience. So, If you, for example, have primary attachment relationships where you experience that person consistently telling you, I see you, I get you, I understand you, and I want to be in relationship with you. I accept you as you are. I see you, and I I want to be near you. I love you. I I want the best for you. I'm going to fight for you. Maybe a way to summarize that is to use a phrase that Carl Rogers, a famous psychiatrist, came up with called unconditional positive regard. I know that's really clinical, isn't it? Unconditional positive regard, right? But it's just that as a phrase to kind of get it that I want to move towards you in relationship. When you experience that from your primary attachment relationships consistently, what does that do? It leads to real emotional health because you, it creates a secure, cohesive identity. You have the sense of like, you know who you are. You're comfortable with who you are. You're secure in who you are. You are loved and you are worthy of love. And that empowers you to move out into the world and engage other relationships from that secure identity. Have you ever met somebody like that? Somebody that's just like comfortable in their own skin? It's unnerving, isn't it? They're just so like, not arrogant, just confident, right? And 
they're so resilient. They're, it's like life can just knock them down, and they just seem to still be grounded. And when they talk to you, they, they see you. They, it's like they, they're, they're in tune with you. They're not sitting there thinking, okay, what's the next thing I'm going to say, right? <laughs> I've only met a few people like this in my life. And what's behind that is a really good attachment. On the other hand, when our attachments are bad, when we don't experience consistent, unconditional, positive regard, or worse, we don't experience it at all, the result is emotional, psychological dysfunction. We experience all kinds of problems from this very inconsistent, incoherent identity, anxiety, depression, a whole host of personality disorders and dysfunction. And on the very, very, very extreme end, one thing that has been pretty well documented is that a common theme among serial killers is really, really unhealthy attachments with mom and dad. So it is not a stretch to say healthy relationships, okay? Healthy attachments is a human need, right? We all on board with that? Okay. Now, I recognize this is not a seminar on attachment. We are at church, and we were talking about the Bible. So how do we connect these things? Here's the point. This whole idea of attachment, we didn't discover it 100 years ago. God has been trying to tell us about this since the beginning. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, it is very, very clear. People were created in and for relationships. It is not good for man to be alone, right? If you weren't with us in the first week of this series, go back and listen to it because we talk about this more in depth. Genesis chapters 1 and 2, right? We As human beings, we are created, and our identity, our purpose in this universe is given to us in the context of relationships. Yes, relationships with one another, with our parents, with our spouses, with our friends, our community, but there's a relationship that we see in Genesis that supersedes all of the others. It precedes and empowers all of those other relationships, and it's the relationship with God, our Creator. And in fact, that is the primary attachment that we were meant to have to begin with. We were meant to have our identity formed and constructed on our relationship with Him. We were meant to move out into the world from an identity that was formed with our relationship with God. And that's the one relationship where we can actually experience unconditional positive regard. Friends, God sees you. He understands you because he made you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he doesn't move away from you. He moves towards us in relationship. He wants desperately to be in relationship with you. He loves you. And he absolutely wants the best for you. And he has proven over and over that he is willing to fight for what's best for you. But we lost that relationship, didn't we? In the garden, we lost that primary attachment with God when our parents, Adam and Eve, betrayed God, followed the word of the serpent instead of God's word, and we got kicked out of the garden. The relationship was broken. But what we know is that the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus restored that relationship. 
Amen. So now we have access to our true primary attachment again. But how, how do you do relationship with an invisible God? Right? Like it's one thing for us to have relationships because we're, we're right there. Hi. You know, like we can see each other. We can, like how do we do with God's invisible? How do we do that? Well, think about how you start relationships now. How do you get to know somebody? Well, oftentimes, they start telling you their story. They tell you their story bit by bit, piece by piece, and as you, they tell you their story, you begin to understand them. You begin to kind of get this 365-degree view of them where you begin to not only understand what they like and what they don't like, you begin to understand why. Why do they like what they like? Why they dislike what they dislike? And then you find that you've become a part of that story. Right? That's how relationships work. The same is true of God. What did we say in week number three? The Bible is God's story. It's His story that He tells His people so that we know who He is. So that we know who we are. And that's the place where He communicates His unconditional positive regard for us. So, that might, what am I saying? I realize that that may be a bit of, of like, whoa, I've never really thought about it like that way before for many of us in the room. That may be kind of a new concept. So, I want to be very practical for a minute, okay? I, I, wanna, I just want us to really like bring this down to the ground. So, Think, think of it like this. The Bible, typically when we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, when we meditate on the Bible, we think we're doing this like intellectual, philosophical work, but we're not. We're doing relational work. And that has some real implications. All right, I want to give you two. All right, so this is real practical. If you're a note taker, write these down. All right, two, two implications. First one, let's think about rituals for a minute. Okay, and I'm going to use my, my marriage as an example. As many of you know, I'm married to a wonderful woman, and we have been for almost 11 years. Whoa! Right? Yeah! Now, she and I have a few rituals, all right? One of them is that pretty much every morning, we, we make coffee, we sit down on the couch together, and we just kind of, like, connect. You know, how was, how, how'd you sleep? What you got going on today? What's, and we kind of orient ourselves to the day ahead together, right? That's a ritual we have. Now, there are two equal and opposite responses to rituals in relationships, right? One would be to say, rituals, oh, no, no, no. We want our relationship to be organic. We want it to be spontaneous. You know, we just want it to connect when it feels natural to connect. Well, sorry, relationships require effort and intentionality, especially close relationships. If you never carve out time to connect with somebody you're in relationship with, you won't connect very much at all. Sorry. Now, the other mistake would be to say, oh, yes, rituals are very, very important, and we have a very good marriage because every day our butts at 7 a.m. are on that sofa, and coffee is in hand, and we are going to have our ritual. What's the problem there? The ritual has become ritualized. It's no longer about the relationship, it's just about the ritual. There's no, 
There's no love there. There's no warmth. And there's no room for spontaneity. Sometimes we have coffee at coffee shops, right? (laughs) Now, we can make those same mistakes with God. Some of you have no ritual in place to engage with God's Word. And so you almost never read it because you're like, oh, I just want it to be spontaneous. I want it to be natural. What you're saying is you don't want to put forth effort. You don't want to put forth intentionality. It's good for us to carve out regular time to spend with the God in whom we are in relationship with, okay? Now, some of you, you have your ritual, and oh boy, you got your rituals, and you are a good Christian because you have your quiet time every day at 6 a.m., right? But you've, you've squeezed out any sense of love, any sense of warmth. It's all about the ritual, and you've forgotten the relationship. And you need to inject some spontaneity, some life into those rituals. I, I'm not, I'm, what I'm about to suggest, hear me out. Maybe what you need, not don't leave Central Western Church, please stay, please stay. But maybe once a year, maybe once a year, you visit a church that is really different, like a Greek Orthodox church or a charismatic church, just one Sunday a year, to just let inject some life into the relationship so that you can experience God in a different way. Some, or be creative. Talk amongst yourselves later about how we can do that. Okay, that's implication number one. Implication number two. Um, relationships like plants require growth. You need to nurture them, they, and it takes time. It's a process, okay? It takes lots and lots of time. Again, my wife and I, almost 11 years together, we spend a lot of time together, and most of our time together is mundane. Now, I am not saying she's boring or that I'm boring. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that most of our time together is spent washing the dishes, cleaning the house, getting the kids ready, you know, that kind of day in, day out routine, right? We have moments of romance, moments of excitement, but in between those is a lot of this. A lot of that mundane life stuff, right? But here's the thing. Those mundane moments, they are just as much a part of our relationship as those moments of romance. And in fact, I would argue that the way we handle one another, the way our disposition towards one another in those mundane moments has a greater influence on the health of our relationship than those, momentary, those little moments of romance. The same is true of God. If you've been a Christian for a while and you open your Bible and it's just kind of dry, or you come to church and it just doesn't wow you the way it did at one time in your life, that doesn't mean it's not working. It means you're in a relationship. And the way you handle those mundane moments, your disposition in those everyday moments has the capacity to either build trust and intimacy with God or it can break your trust and intimacy with God. Okay? So those are the two implications. What can we expect from God's Word? 
We can expect God's word to nourish us in relationship with God, who is our true primary attachment, because the Bible is God speaking to his people, us, his people. Now, that raises another question. How do you know? How do you know that you're actually being nourished in relationship with God? How do you know that's going on? Well, let's go back to our metaphor. Verse 10, the rain, the snow comes down, it waters the earth, all right, it, which causes the crops to grow up, and what do the crops do? They feed the community. This goes back to what we said in week two. God speaks to us, his people, in order to speak through us. The way you know that you are being nourished by your relationship with God through his word is that you, in turn, are a person who begins to nourish those around you. That's true of us as individuals, and that's true of us as as a group, as a church, when we nourish those around us, that shows that we have, ourselves have been nourished. You ever heard the phrase, you can't give somebody what you don't have yourself? We can't show other people unconditional positive regard until we experience it. And look, guys, I'm, I'm sure we have, ourselves have been, been part of this. I'm sure we've seen This happened to churches and to other Christians, but when we, the people of God, become ingrown, and it becomes all about us and our needs, and we stop paying attention to the outsider, when we even become hostile to the other, whoever the other is, when that happens, that is an indication that there is a drought of God's Word. Either we're not reading it, or we are treating it like an instruction manual of morals, or a book of philosophical principles, or a therapeutic self-help book, but it's not. It's God's story. And when we receive it as God's way of speaking to us, doing relationship with us, it will always drive us out. What can we expect from God's Word? We can expect God's Word to nourish us in relationship with God, our true primary attachment, because the Bible is God speaking to us, His people, and the way we know that we have been nourished is that we, in turn, become people who nourish others in relationship. Now, there's one more thing we can expect. And that comes in the second half of our passage where God kind of shifts the metaphor and suddenly the trees are clapping their hands and the mountains and the hills are singing and instead of the thorns and briars, all these trees are popping up. What's that about? Well, to understand that, you have to know the story, right? Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve betray God by following the word of the serpent, right? And God confronts them. And he pronounces what we call the curse. Now, the curse is not God like, I'm going to punish you, okay? This is God saying, this is what life is going to be like now. Because you made this choice, this is what is going to happen to the world. Do you remember what he tells Eve? He says, you will have pain in childbirth. 
Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. Broken human relationships. What does he say to Adam? He says, by the sweat of your face will you eat your bread. Work is no longer easy. It's hard. It's frustrating. It's disappointing. And he says, cursed is the ground because of you. It will no longer yield to you. The world doesn't cooperate with us anymore because it will produce thorns and thistles. That's an image of the world no longer cooperating with us, but fighting against us. The world doesn't work the way it's supposed to anymore. It's broken. It's cursed because we cursed it. We broke it. So when God says, when I send my word, you'll go out singing. The hills will sing. The mountains will sing. The trees are going to clap their hands. It is an image of the thorns and the thistles withering. The tree, which is a symbol of life and fullness growing up. It's the curse being unraveled. The curse is being taken away. Really? When we read the Bible, it takes back the curse? You have to know one other promise God made. Right before God pronounces the curse, he made a promise. He tells the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock, and I will put enmity, warfare, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. God made a promise that day that one descendant of Eve would come. And by having a fatal blow dealt to him, he would in turn crush the head of the serpent, making right everything we made wrong in the garden. And you know who that is. A few thousand years later, the Lord Jesus went to the cross. And what was it that was shoved on top of his head? crown of thorns. Jesus bore the curse in his body. He was cut off from God the Father. The one person who was actually connected to God in perfect relationship, he was cut off so that our relationship could be restored. Jesus took the curse. Wait a minute. Is it the Bible that takes the curse? Is the Bible that takes away the curse? Does Jesus take away the curse? Which is it? Yes. You see, friends, Jesus and the Bible are a package deal. In John chapter 5, it's in the reference section of your bulletin. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking with the Pharisees, his Jewish opponents, and he says, you know, you search these scriptures, talking about the Bible, you search these scriptures thinking that in them you have life. And they were, they were almost right. I mean, they knew their Bible. They knew Isaiah chapter 55. They knew the promise of God giving life when he gives his word. But he says, but... It is these scriptures that point to me, and yet you reject me. Jesus is saying, you cannot receive the life-giving relationship with God that the Bible promises without first receiving Him. And the reverse is also true. We can't receive the new life of Jesus. We cannot receive the new heavens and new earth that he is going to bring where the world is finally and forever cleansed of the curse, where everything will work the way it's supposed to work forever. 
We can't have that without the Bible. Thank you. (laughs) Jesus and the Bible are a package deal. Do you want to know Jesus better? Do you want to love him more deeply? Do you want your relationship with him to be the attachment that actually builds and constructs your identity, making you into a person who is resilient, a person who is able to move out in confidence and love into the world? Then you need the Bible. Why are we studying Leviticus? It reads like an instruction manual, because we will encounter Jesus in those pages. And I promise, if you're here today and you are not in a relationship with Jesus, you're here considering, I'm going to tell you this, when you bend the knee, and I know that's a really, what does that mean? When you say to Jesus, okay, I will let you tell me who I am instead of me trying to tell you who I am. When you do that, the Bible becomes alive. It will actually change you. It will actually change us, and we will become people who in turn change the communities around us, which will change the world. What can we expect from the Word of God? We can expect it to nourish us in relationship with God, our true primary attachment, because the Bible is God's speaking to us, His people. And we know that we have been nourished when we, in turn, nourish those around us. And we can expect the Bible to take us to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I confess before my brothers and sisters and you that I struggle to spend enough time with you. That I sometimes starve myself relationally with you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would change my heart that you would change our hearts, that we would be motivated, driven to, desperately driven to go to your word, where we will find life and nourishment, where we will experience the unconditional positive regard that you have for us, and that we would let that change us, and that it would change our community, and that it would change our city, and that it would change the world. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.